We're into John chapter 17. And I mentioned last week that in John 16, it's almost as if John wanted us to slow down a little and to see what the Lord was saying. And then we have this wonderful prayer record in John 17, the, the longest of the Lord's own prayers to his fathers that, that is recorded for us. And I think it's, it's good for us to slow down again and listen to the Lord Jesus as he connects with his father in prayer. Now, this prayer in John 17 uh, divides itself naturally into three distinct sections. And I think we'll probably cover these over the next three weeks, though I don't want to uh, impose that on the brothers who are following. But there certainly is, in the first five verses, Jesus' prayer for himself and for the Father's glory. And we're going to think on that tonight. Then you move through another section from verse 6 through to 19, and Jesus' prayer is for the 11 disciples that are there with him, primarily those who would go out and be his apostles, his sent ones. And then from 26, or sorry, verse 20 through to 26, you have his prayer extending to everyone who would believe in the message that those apostles would take to the world. And it's the message that has come to us down the history of the ages. So that's how the prayer divides itself up. Let's read the first five verses then. So we're in John chapter 17 and the first five verses. This is after Jesus said this, and that was all of the words that were recorded in the previous few chapters. He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Here we're listening in on Jesus's prayer. And his whole prayer is really a prayer regarding the glory of God. Now, glory in the scriptures means something that's, that's heavy, something that has real value. And glory in the sense that it's used here in the New Testament and the language of the word glory as it's translated from the Greek into the English, really has behind it the idea of having splendid greatness. That's what we're thinking of. So Jesus is praying about God in all of his fullness, having splendid greatness, which he does by virtue of who he is, but that that would be realized in the life of the Lord Jesus as he brings the splendid greatness of God to people's awareness through the completion of his mission and then part of that mission is that he would bring a redeemed people that are saved and rescued from the effects and the consequences of sin by God's power and that in itself reveals a splendid greatness of God and then that redeemed people themselves are transformed by God's power through the Holy Spirit who lives in each one of them and we thought about what he the Lord Jesus said about the indwelling Holy Spirit in previous chapters, that transformation work reveals the glory, the splendid greatness of God in their lives. That was the mission 
of God that's bound up in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. It's Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, that those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, that God's glory is seen in us because we're transformed into his image, into the image that looks like Jesus with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So that's why uh, Jesus had come to bring to God a people saved from the consequences of sin. They would be transformed. And that whole thing was displaying the splendid greatness of God. So we have Jesus here in verse one. It says that after Jesus had said the things that he'd taught the apostles in the upper room previously, it says he looked toward heaven and prayed. Notice that John says it was Jesus. I think he wants us to remember that here is the man, Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior. He is the Savior of God's people, and he is the one we look to, and he's a human being like you and me, but yet so very different. And he's so very different, and it says that he, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Now, that would have been a natural thing for a Jewish person to have done, or even the pagan uh, worshippers of idols. They would have lifted their, their eyes towards heaven. And Jesus was looking beyond this created order, of course. He was looking beyond this cosmos. He was looking to the non-geographical dwelling place of God. He could see beyond it in his interaction with his father. He himself was not of this world, as we'll get to in later chapters. But it tells us here that this man who could see beyond this cosmos, it says he prayed. And it reminds us of his absolute reliance, of his relational reliance on his father in his own life. And he was praying then for himself and for the glory of his father and for the blessing of the glory of God to be seen in the lives of his followers. And he's relying on that relationship to bring that about. So he says then, Father, the hour has come. Here he is, and it's the focal point of his mission as Messiah. Do you remember we've seen this phrase, uh, his hour, a number of times in our study through John? Matthew chapter 26 and verse 18 he records it differently, Matthew does, and he records Jesus saying, my appointed time. There was a time in all of the unendingness of eternity that Jesus had come within time to bring to completion. And it was the time when he would reveal the fullness of the greatness of the splendor of God in his mission as Messiah, the anointed rescuer of his people. Back in John chapter 12, uh, we read this and we thought about this earlier in our studies, where Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And that was when Greeks had come to see Jesus earlier in the same week in the run-up to his time before he would go to the cross. And here he was consumed in these final days and here in these final hours with bringing glory, revealing the splendid greatness of God 
in what he was going to step into. Glorify your name. And that's what he gets to uh, in the latter part of the, the verse one. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. You know, this is a claim to deity. Because in Isaiah 42, verse 8, and Isaiah 48, verse 11, God said through the prophet, he says, I will not yield my glory to another. Here is Jesus saying, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. You see what he's doing? He's claiming equality with God. He knows who he is. He is the man Jesus, yes, but he is also the eternal son of the glorious God. And he's come to display the splendid greatness of God in all that he's doing. How would the Father glorify the Son? We'll see it in the studies to come, but the Father will glorify, reveal the splendid greatness of God by sustaining Jesus as he goes into his suffering, by accepting his sacrifice for sin and for sinners. By resurrecting him from the dead and then restoring him to the glory that he had with God for all eternity and throning him at his right hand. The route to glory, we've already said this in our, in our studies in John, the route to glory, and Jesus knew it, was through his life into crucifixion, into death, then to be raised in resurrection glory and then to ascend and be enthroned again the right hand of God. Back in John chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, at the early moment in the upper room situation, as Judas went out into the darkness, we read, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. Jesus was here at this hour knowing that it was going to reveal the splendid greatness of God. And in verse 2, for you granted him authority. Let's not miss the word for there in the NIV. He says, because you granted Jesus, because you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Here is the authority that God longed to give to Adam and Eve and humanity back in the Garden of Eden, but they forfeited it through their sinful rejection of all that God had said was for their good. They rejected the glory of God, preferring glory for themselves. And for that reason, then, the authority that humanity had in creation was spoiled. That ruling along with God was spoiled. But here, we have Jesus being marked out and knowing for himself that he has been given authority over all flesh, it says, but particularly people are in mind here. So here is the son of God who has taken on human flesh and he is the son of man. And he has authority over all other human beings because he's a perfect human being. He's without sin. You know, this is a fulfillment of that wonderful vision that uh, Daniel had in Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 where it says that he he looked in his visions and there before me was one like a son of man uh, and he was coming with the clouds of heaven 
and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence and he was given authority glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed the eternal son of god became the son of man he took on human flesh and he has because of being the son of god and the son of man he has authority over all people and that's why he is the judge of every single one of us but he has come to this moment to reveal this splendid greatness of god the splendid greatness of god in salvation and bringing a people out of sin and into the life of what it means to follow jesus that perfect human we're brought into the capacity to live the human life as God originally intended it. And this would be revealed in his life, yes. And then through his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his enthronement. And we're going to get there, God willing, as we continue in our study. You know, Jesus has come that humanity might be restored to the glory position that God wanted for them in the very beginning. He brings us into it. Romans 8, 17, do you remember Paul? as he's just running through all of the blessings that God brings on those whom God has called to himself. He says, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share his glory, the splendid greatness of God is going to be shared with us because of the one the son of God who has come to be son of man, who has come to this hour, this focal point, in which the glory of God will be seen through his sacrifice and his resurrection from death and his ascension and his enthronement at the right hand. Notice that he says that you've given him authority over all people, that he would be the one to give eternal life. You know, Jesus, John has already told us in chapter one, verse four, that in him was life and life was the light of all mankind. He's the source of life. And then we've thought of John 10 and 10, where Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. He comes that he might be the means of stepping into that life. And he's the one who gives it because he has authority to do that as the eternal son of God. And this remarkable next phrase, he says to give eternal life to those you have given him. Now, as you go through this, this prayer, you'll see that five times repeated. Jesus is delighting in those that the Father has given to him. The Father has given Jesus a gift, and it's the gift of the men who were around him, the apostles, and it's the gift that extends beyond them to all those who put their faith and their trust in him as Savior. They're the Father's gift to the Son, and you come across that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, where the writer there, borrowing from Isaiah 8 and 18, applies it to Jesus and says that Jesus is saying, here am I and the children God has given me. God has given me his children and he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Here we're brought into a little bit of an understanding of the, the graciousness of our giving God and the glory of his splendid, splendidness, greatness. They give to one another in that perfect community of love in the Trinity and the gift that the Father gives to the Son is the redeemed people of God. And the Son, he secures them through this hour that he's going into. 
and then the spirit is given to them to seal them to be his for eternity it's wonderful to be reminded that this is what jesus has in his mind as he's communicating in prayer with the father and he goes on then to help us as it's recorded for us to understand what eternal life is verse three now this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent you know i often say it and others have to here is a definition from the lips of the one who knows the definition of eternal life you notice here that it's not a definition that deals with quantity it's not about an extent of time it's about quality it's about being brought into the knowledge of a relationship with god the only true god and we come into that knowledge through jesus the messiah whom the father has sent another way of saying it it's is this this eternal life is not about chronology it's not about thinking about life that never ends this is thinking about life that is unending in a relationship with god that can never be broken so it's not about chronology it's about relationship that's what eternal life is and that's what jesus has come to this moment and he's praying to his father that he would know the help and the support of his father as he steps into the moments that will bring this reality to be revealed and in so being revealed it will show us the splendid greatness of who god is notice that jesus said that jesus christ whom you have sent you know it's the only time i think we we read it in the book of john where jesus refers to himself as jesus christ he knows who he is he knows yes he's the man jesus but he also knows that he's the messiah christ the messiah he is the anointed one of god who has come to this moment and he knows that people must trust in him and receive from him the gift of life if they're come if they're to come into this relationship and the father has sent him the anointed one you go back to john chapter 3 and verse 17 god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him that's what jesus has come to achieve the father sending him the anointed one the one like us yet without sin so that he might come and bring us into relationship for eternity with god you know he's the only one qualified to do it john chapter 1 verse 18 no one has ever seen god but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. And he has made him known to us. Spirit coming and opening our eyes to see him for who he is, the anointed Messiah, Savior of God's eternally blessed and redeemed people. This is the revealing of the splendid greatness of God. And that's why Jesus then goes into verse four. And he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And we've said this many times, that, that Jesus focused his entire career on fulfilling the Father's purpose and delivering the Father's message. And it's a message of love. It's a message that also challenges us where we are. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand, has come near. The whole of Jesus's life has been consumed with sharing that with people that they may step into this blessing one commentator has put it this way the whole life of jesus is depicted as 
a glorifying of the Son by the Father, and at the same time, the Father by the Son. You see this perfect unity between Father and Son, and we'll see the glory work of the Spirit coming to uh, its fruition in time as well, as he is the sent one to come to indwell the believers. You just see the Trinity working together, Father, Son, and Spirit, to bring glory to all that God is. The Father is glorified when the Son gives eternal life to humanity. When he gives it to those that the Father has said, these are the ones that you'll give eternal life to. And he's the one who has secured that eternal life for them. And you know, those disciples then are the ones who then continue remarkably to bring glory to God. That's where we were in John 15, through fruit bearing. It's where we were in John 14, through relying on God in prayer, just like Jesus is doing here and so many other ways as we've had it in earlier chapters. You know, in this statement here, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. We might wonder, well, was, was there not the crucifixion and all that was associated with that to come? Yeah, for sure. Jesus was going to step out of this place go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was going to uh, be thinking about what it meant for him to continue in the will of his Father. And he was going to go forward into the experience of the cross, into death, and go through that awful experience to be the sin bearer and the sacrifice for sinners. And he was going to come through it because he knew his Father would raise him from the dead and he knew he was on his way back that's why he says in the past tense here i have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do you know jesus is looking beyond and for him the job is already complete he's here in his prayer resolute in stepping forward into that which god had planned and purpose from all of eternity his resolve would not waver you know, his resolve did not waver in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's not what we read there. He wasn't wondering if there was, a, there was another way. He, he would have hoped there would be another way, but there was no other way. This was the one purposed from all eternity. And he steps willingly into it. And he sees it here in his prayer as a done deal. He sees beyond. With maybe cause to think about Hebrews 12 and 2, where it tells us that who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here was the Savior in this moment in John 17, before all of the horrors that are going to come his way, come his way. He, he's praying, and for him, the work is finished. He sees beyond, and his resolve will not waver. And then verse 5, and he says, therefore, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You know, the Greek there really means glorify me with yourself before the world was. So he's saying, bring me back to where I was, that place of um, enthronement in heaven. And he's saying, bring me back to that. That was always the case before anything was created. He's looking for and his longing for that being brought back to the position that he has left behind in his humiliation as coming, in his humility as a servant, stepping in 
to humanity. He's, he's looking to be restored. He wants to be glorified. The splendid greatness of who he is and the splendid greatness of God revealed in him being brought to the throne is what's on his mind. No wonder the Savior's resolved to go forward to Calvary. Uh, never, never shifted, never wavered. And you know something that's really remarkable in all of this? Remember this is, John tells us in verse 1, Jesus said this. Here's the man. Here's the man who is the same time the eternal son of God. And he knows that in his return to heaven's throne, it's going to be different. There is going to be a glory. If it's possible to say that there would be an enhanced glory with, with God. I can't understand how we can say that, but in a sense we must. Because here was going to be the resurrected Christ in his glorified human body, being bodily ascending and enthroned at the right hand of God. And the glory of God has been, in a sense, unveiled to us. It's been shown to us the splendid greatness of who God is. And it's shown to us when he brings a human to sit with him on his throne. Now, it's no ordinary human, as we thought he's the one who has authority over all others. But he's the one who's, who then says, you come and be with me. Come and step into the privileges of being co-heirs with me. And as God raises this one to the throne, glorifying him with himself, with the glory that he'd always has, then there's this humanity that is brought with him. You know, it was David in Psalm 8 who said about humanity. And his psalm, he says, you have made them, that's humanity, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. That was in this in their place and our place within the created order. But you know, that glory and honor was, was tarnished because of our sin. But then comes the eternal son of God, who is the son of man, Jesus, the savior. And in his sinless perfection, we see glory, the glory of a perfect human. And we see the glory of God revealed. And he brings then the perfection of that glory to the throne. It was for that joy that Jesus kept going forward to embrace all of this. And it's here as the, the front piece that's in his mind, as he begins his prayer. It's not a selfish thing for him to pray for his glory and for the glory of his father, because God is the most glorious being there is. And we must honor him as such. And to not do that is sin. But here is Jesus, the one who has come to bring us out of that, God-hating rebellion, and instead to step into this relationship that is eternal life that he secures as he unwaveringly steps forward to take his place at the cross. What a glorious saviour we have.